HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Hi there, and thank you for joining us again for another episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host and tour guide through the Midwest, Capri Cafaro. This is yet another introductory episode to the Midwest and its foodways, putting everything into context. Our first guest today is Sarah Wasberg-Johnson, better known as the food historian. Sarah has a bachelor's in Scandinavian studies and history, as well as a master's in history. Her areas of expertise include American food history, history of domestic science, and agricultural history, just to name a few. She is also a Midwestern native from Fargo, North Dakota. Sarah, we're happy to have you here. No question why you are called the food historian with all of that expertise. Thanks, Capri. I'm happy to be on board. Awesome. Well, you know, with with this kind of perspective on food history and being a Midwestern native, um, looking at things through an agricultural lens as well, um, when people think about Midwestern food, not a lot of things come to mind. Maybe meatloaf or hot dogs or, you know, things associated with quintessential Americana. I've brought this up before with um, in other uh, interviews on this, on this program. Um, but n- it's not like people can point to some iconic dish like it's barbecue from the South or it's New England clam chowder. And so I wanted to kick off the second introductory episode of our series with a very important question that I'm going to pose to you, Sarah, of why is it so hard to define what Midwestern food is? Yeah, and it's it's really the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, and there's a lot of sort of complicated factors behind it. Um, so I thought we could start by talking a little bit about how regional foods in the United States in general came about, right? Please. So that can kind of help us figure out why Midwestern food Right. Isn't as cohesive or popular as other regional food waste. So um, the first thing with American regional food waste has to do with indigenous ingredients. Most regional food waste are defined by indigenous American ingredients and techniques, cooking techniques, um, defined by native peoples. Um, in the South, 
and in New England in particular, there's also an African influence mm. um, from enslaved people. But really, it has a lot to do with the ingredients. So part of it is how abundant are those ingredients in the wild? How easy are they to prepare? And ultimately, what becomes most important is how easy are they to cultivate, right? And and let me just say, I, this is great because this links back to our actual very first guest on the very first program of the show who talked about uh, food anthropology and these three kind of themes of biology, culture, and symbolism. And so this sounds like it's also linked to that almost uh, biology of the land as well, those ingredients. Yeah. And a lot of the earliest uh, European immigrants to what would become the United States um, we're really reliant on indigenous ingredients for mm -hmm. survival. You look at New England, you look at Spanish immigration to Florida and other parts of the South. Um, they're far from home. Their supply lines take you know a year to get there. So they're really reliant on what's available to them. Um, and also, they've those areas have been settled for a lot longer than most of the Midwest. So they have a mm -hmm. lot more time to develop regional foodways. My part of the Midwest, the upper Midwest, um, was settled by white Europeans quite late. North Dakota, some of the first uh, white uh, European families moving to that area didn't arrive until the 1860s. Wow. <laughs> which, now that I live in New York, which was settled in, you know, the 1610s, <laughs> there's, there's a pretty big difference in that. And another factor that's happening, um, in part because of that late settlement, is also that people who were moving to those areas were also moving um, domestically. There were domestic immigration and emigration as well. Yes. So people were moving from other areas of the country where they already had established foodways. Um, they were traveling on canals or by railroad often, which meant that they had a connection to the places where they were from. And there was already an established form of agriculture that was suitable to much of the United States. So they were there was not as much reliance on uh, indigenous ingredients when people came to the Midwest. So that is a factor as well. Mm. That that is a great context. So that that lays, I think, the basis for um, at least the agricultural differences um, or the agricultural factors that lead to why there isn't one sort of homogeneous uh, idea of Midwestern foods. Um, but maybe you can talk even a little bit more about the culture and the cultural differences um, yeah, and, so and, how, and how they, you know, those not only brought different agri agricultural resources with them, but totally different flavor profiles too, so to speak. Yeah. So, um, a lot of white Europeans emigrating to the Midwest uh, were from Northern Europe. Um, and so although there were indigenous ingredients available to them, a lot of the times they already had um, European analogs. For instance, in Minnesota, uh, indigenous wild rice cultivation is still happening. And that's actually one of the few indigenous foods. I don't know that most people realize it's from Minnesota, but... Um, it wild rice has sort of gotten into the cultural lexicon of the oh, entire yeah, I, I do. I actually got a gift of a, of a large uh, ball jar of wild rice from folks that I met from Minnesota. So yeah, the real stuff, right? Yep. Not the cultivated kind. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, but European immigrants already had wheat 
and the upper Midwest turned out to be really great for wheat production. So there wasn't that widespread adoption of, of wild rice. Um, there are some indigenous ingredients that have sort of become American, um, mm -hmm. most notably corn. Corn. <laughs> right? But also things like uh, beans um, and squash, things like that. Mm -hmm. But those are, are foods that have been kind of widely adopted across the entire United States. So they're not unique to the Midwest. Although I think probably Midwesterners eat more corn than just about anybody else. Except we've for already, the Southwest. We've probably spent <laughs> 20 minutes of, of, this, of this series so far just on corn. So I, I'll vouch for that. Yeah. So the other thing that's happening is because uh, European immigrants settled quite late in the Midwest compared to the rest of the country, um, they've sort of maintained their uh, immigrant cultural traditions, but mm -hmm. those cultural traditions have been maintained sort of, you know, on their own. There's not really a broad melting pot of all of the traditions sort of becoming Midwestern. They're still Scandinavian American, Polish American. German-American, Italian-American, you know what I mean? Like they're not, they haven't become sort of these iconic things that represent a place because they're still associated with Europe. Right, right. Um, interesting, but you know, but but I would say that not a lot of people think that those ethnicities are maybe associated with the Midwest. You know, people think of it as a much more, much more bland place. Um, that is more homogeneous. I mean, I think that the perception is that, you know, while you have all these immigrant populations um, that have basically retained their own individual identities, I don't think that people necessarily associate, um, you know, a, a rich, diverse immigrant population with the Midwest. They see it as more homogeneous. They see it as, you know, one big hot dish, one big casserole. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do... Um with the concept of, I call it the flyover country curse. <laughs> oh, I've talked about this. Yeah, be because even when settlement was, you know, westward settlement was first happening, um, the Great Plains in particular were almost completely ignored because they were seen as being a desert. And it's not until later in the 19th century that people discover, oh, hey, wait, prairies are actually really great for farming. Um, <laughs> so I think because it's, been kind of ignored and because outside of you know the big cities um people don't really go there you know people from new york city don't go to north dakota to vacation <laughs> they go to florida they go to maine they go to you know cape cod they go to the outer banks um and so you don't have people traveling to the midwest necessarily again with the exception of the cities and experiencing those local food cultures and loving them and taking them home with them. Right. Uh, that's a very good point. I mean, our regionalism is uh, very much contributes, I think, to, to that and the way that our current sort of travel patterns um, inform that as well. And, and the Midwest, the middle of the country, you see the flyover country, which I can't stand that term, but people do use it. I know, it. I can't either. <laughs> uh, that... Um, you know, people just basically ignore the middle of the country because they just think that, you know, there's it has nothing there to offer. And so that, again, is why I wanted to to do embark upon this series and, and explore this content. Um, and and so 
I know that I started this by asking you, why is it so hard to define Midwestern food, which you've obviously described because there's, it's so, it's so convoluted. There's so many, you know, crevices and aspects to it. But I'm going to turn this around and ask you one final question. If you had to define Midwestern food, how would you? Oh, gosh. Oh, I mean, can you? What are we defining as the Midwest? Can we start there? <laughs> well, the, the, the entire the, I'm going with the traditional, um, you know, the entirety. So we're dealing with the Upper Midwest, the Dakotas, all the way down to Kansas and Nebraska, all the way over to Ohio. You know, Missouri, Illinois, okay. Iowa. So Michigan. It's the whole. It's the whole. Right. Lot. Right. So like Old Northwest, Great Lakes, Upper Plains, Mississippi exactly. River Valley, kind of place. Okay. That's right. Oh, that is a hugely diverse area and probably the largest region in the country to try and define. Because even the South, I mean, the South is sort of defined, you know, in a certain way. But even within the South, there's lots of um, more specific. Right. Low country. And yeah. yeah. Carolina Rice Kitchen kind of places. Florida has totally different. Florida's got it. Yeah. Yeah. So um I think the Midwest is very similar in that instance. I think probably how most people, including Midwesterners, are going to define Midwestern food is um, based on agriculture. I know I've kind of been harping on that a little bit. But, you know, they think about fresh vegetables and, you know, maybe preserves and pickles and lots of dairy from the dairy farms you know, sweet corn, kind of all those stereotypical Americana things, um, I think are really what comes to people's minds, a sort of romanticized version of the American diversified family farm, right? Where you've got dairy cows, you've got pigs, you've got chickens, you've got the vegetable garden, you've got fields of grain, all that sort of thing, I think, rings a lot of bells for people. Um, amber, waves about, of, amber waves oh, yeah. of rain. <laughs> yeah. Whether or not it's accurate, that's what I think the perception is. So, Right. Well, this this is one of these reasons why I say that Midwestern food is very much a state of mind because it's evocative of certain things. I mean, you just described, you know, the, this quintessential Americana and it, you know, based in our agricultural, um, you know, history and practices we've and i've said this before and i'll say it again the midwest has often been referred to not just as flyover country but as the breadbasket of america and that i think is exactly what you're saying here is that if at least in your view and and i think that this is probably conventional wisdom is that midwestern food is seen at the, as the breadbasket of america it's a good jumping off point for the rest of this, our conversation as we continue our journey through the Midwest, uh, exploring all those other cultures that have come and populated um, what was a rich agricultural land and now is, you know, richly diverse with other uh, immigrant cultures and their own food ways. So um, Sarah, uh, food historian, uh, and, you know, native Midwesterner, we are so thankful for you to share some of your expertise with us. I had a blast, Capri. And if you ever want to talk about North Dakota foodways, you know who to ask. I would love to have you back. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, 
The wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency Tart Cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their beautiful red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile makes them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Well, now I'm joined by Megan Elias, director of the Gastronomy Program at Boston University. She's also the author of several books, including Food on the Page, American Cookbooks and Culture. And I just picked this book up, so I am looking forward to delving into it. Uh, And Megan, we're happy to have you on the program. I'm so happy to be here. I think it's a great project. Well, as I just said, uh, you know, you've written uh, a book about cookbooks and you've written specifically about the intersection of cookbooks and American culture. Um, this show is about the Midwest. So I want to talk a little bit about that specifically. Uh, how would you say Midwestern food uh, has been portrayed in cookbooks from your research? So it's really been demonized um, for a very long time, really, I think since the 1920s. And it's recently... Um, been treated better. I can't say had a revival because there was never a moment when when it was was um, presented um, positively. But we're beginning to see that, um, and you know, and your next guest is is an example of that. But there's there's a glimmer of that in the 1980s, and then it doesn't really take off until more recently. Um, and I have a lot of ideas about why that is, um, but both the reviling and the uh, and the recent kind of return of or new interest in Midwestern cooking and kind of valorization of it. Well, first, uh, maybe you can give us some examples of, sure. you know, how it's been reviled and demonized. Those are pretty strong words. <laughs> it's it's uh, really, it's accurate. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so give me the scoop on that. What okay. it, give me some examples. So beginning about the 1920s, um, this is when food writing begins in America and it's this really interesting moment because it's also the moment of the industrialization of food. Right. And it's also the moment of prohibition. And it's also the moment when nutritional science becomes kind of popularized. So all three of those things are happening at the same time. And food writing begins. And food writing sort of begins as this critique, actually, of American cooking. And what these writers do, um, people actually like MFK Fisher, the beloved food writer, um, and then lesser known names like Rick Ricardo and Edwald Jones, who were, mm-hmm. who were known at the time, but no longer. Um, they, they create this um, really kind of a straw man of, of American cooking. So they, they just said that all of American cooking is monolithic, flavorless, right. kind of like a slave to the industries. Um, also sort of sapped of pleasure by nutritionists and sapped of pleasure by prohibitionists who take all the liquor out of dining. And so they they create this idea, construct this idea of American cooking as something that is sort of opposed to pleasure. So they have this idea that millions and millions of people are sitting down to meals that they can't possibly enjoy and that they don't even care about enjoying them. And this is 
totally impossible, right? If you think about it logically, there's a right. lot of food and people choose when they have the means, they choose what they want, right? So um, it's this really, a really powerful narrative though, because what they do is they write that American food is very bad and French food is very good. And American right. food is very bad, especially in the ways that it's not like French food. So there's this, um, it's always compared to French food. And where this gets specifically to be about in the Midwest is that most of the industrial food um, innovations are really coming out of the Midwest. So right. companies like Libby and Armour, um, General General uh, Mills. General Mills, yeah. Yeah, so all of that, it's like, it's, it's this hotbed of... of um, creativity and innovation in food, in providing safe, um, nutritious, uh, and, and quite affordable food. Right. Reliable, so, yeah. shelf-stable, all of those things. Exactly. come along with mechanization, sure. Right. And time-saving, too. Right. So there's this other narrative going on here where um, American women of the middle class, we should say, start to have um, unprecedented amounts of free time. And that part of that free time is provided by these industrial food processors who make it possible to, you know, open a can and have soup ready in 20 minutes rather than making soup throughout your day and kind of being tied to your kitchen. And so there's something liberational, you know, liberationist going on there that then the people who insist that actually the old French way of doing things is better are, are kind of trying to drive women back into the kitchen. Right. So, Interesting. Yeah. And and I think it's in, uh, also probably important to note that this is right around uh, the, the time contemporary to the suffrage movement as well. Exactly. Right. Right. So women are getting the vote in 1920. And this is kind of scary <laughs> to some people. So there there's this idea that when women get out in public, we lose um, all of the deliciousness that's that could be possible. Now, of course, there's also this running argument that it's it's not even possible to have delicious food in most of America because Americans don't know what's tasty. They don't know what's good for them. And you'll see there's a little, there are these exceptions. So New Orleans is okay. New Orleans is cool because it's kind of French. And San Francisco has like two dishes, chipino and sourdough bread. And those are okay because they're kind of European. But the kind of the idea of the mainstream American foodways, which is also a myth itself, right? But then the second myth piled on top of that is that it's flavorless and kind of cultureless. Mm-hmm. And again, right, if you're from the Midwest, you know that's totally ridiculous because it's always been a diverse place. It's always right. been a place of many cultures. Um, and, and people, you know, intermarriage across cultures, people sharing foodways. There's always been an African-American presence. There's always been a Latinx presence. There's always, of course, been Native American um, cooks and, and kitchens. And then all of the waves of European immigration all bringing different foodways. So it's, it's a very um, diverse kind of plate, right? right? But that gets buried under this idea that all it is is the industrial. Right. And and I think you bring up a very good point, too, that what I see often is that people equate the Midwest with this basic notion of Americana, um, you know, not only sort of Main Street USA, but this very basic, whether it is a meat and potatoes, meatloaf, um, you know, TV right. dinner, this sort of thing. Um, but it is a much richer culinary culture than than these sort of basic dishes that are right. sort of industrial foodways, and you know it's it's interesting that you say uh, you know flavorless, and maybe this leads into my next question, right? That 
Um, you know, there's this concept that, you know, Midwestern food is demonized or reviled because it is flavorless. It doesn't have any it doesn't have any character. But then subsequent to that, you have all of these different uh, immigrant populations that bring all of their different uh, individual uh, food ways uh, to the table, literally and figuratively. Yeah. So it, does that um change the dynamic you you talked about you know the reviling but then right. there's a bit of a resurgence and maybe um a romanticism um coming around about midwestern food is is that immigrant influence oh, alas, and embracing no. <laughs> no. i know it's unfortunate i was so hopeful yeah. yeah i think the diversity of midwestern food is still obscured in american food writing so what happened was um there's this famous moment in 1976 um, when Chez Panisse, which is Alice Waters' you know, French-themed restaurant in Berkeley, California, mm-hmm. they, um, they are doing all these French meals, and they kind of run out of regions of France to do. So they decide to try something local. So they do a California, like they do just like cooking American food from whatever they could kind of forage, um, you know, kind of high-end foraging, I should say, around <laughs> Berkeley. And right. so suddenly it's like, oh, my God, you can cook American food in a French way. So you can have a French way means like attending to um, each ingredient as a kind of treasure in itself. And mm-hmm. and that's how everybody cooks. Right. right. That's it's it's tied to French culture here. So like if you were if you were to have gone in 1976 out to someone's farm in Iowa, they would have been appreciating their tomatoes and their corn just as much as anybody in France was appreciating their asparagus and their peaches, but it's seen as a uniquely French quality. So then this begins this really interesting moment in the late 70s and 80s when American cooks start looking to American culinary traditions. And it's that restaurant um, Prairie in, um, it just, it's, uh, I think it's part of a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's one of the first restaurants to say, okay, we're going to celebrate what's around us. So we're going to celebrate Midwestern foodways and that that we can do that in a kind of fancy French way. So it's still not taking the local foodways on their own merits. It's still kind of trying to like, oh, we're just going to make it high end. And if we, if we make it high end, then it's, it changes what it is. It's not um, this right. thing that we don't trust. Well, and, and, it, and I think that, you know, making it high end insinuates that in its own value, it doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have that qual- quote unquote high end quality. Exactly. Which, it's not know, valuable. Right. right. I mean, literally, like you can't charge someone $20 for a plate of um, casserole, right? But if you put it in a little, a nice little copper you know, dish right. an actual casserole, and then you serve it on a nice tablecloth with, with um, a good story behind it. Yes, right? So it becomes, it, it becomes something different through a presentation, really. Uh, so, um, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, it's, it's all about presentation, framing, marketing, and, you know, we're seeing more and more of, I think, uh, this romanticism as well of, uh, of agriculture, yes. of even urban agriculture uh, as well. And so I, I, I think that maybe... Um, given uh, how much uh, Americans in particular have been open to this quote-unquote farm-to-table movement and these sort of things that maybe um, the Midwest will get its quote-unquote day in the sun. It has to, (laughs) right? Because if you're doing farm-to-table, that's where the farms are, (laughs) you know? That's right. Yeah, so that's, um, I think that's been really exciting to see that actually, that people, 
you know, that people have started to turn, you know, to, to feel okay about calling something like Missouri, you know, this, this, these are pigs that are raised in Missouri. And that, that if you had said that 50 years ago, people would have been like, oh, yuck, right? For no good reason, but because it wasn't, there wasn't this sense that farms, um, that farms mattered, that farms could mm. have a personality, that America could have its own kind of terroir, you know? I love that. Well, this is all about the Midwestern terroir. And uh, it, I will at least say that here on this show, the, every day is the, a day for the, the Midwest and, and its food ways to, to shine bright. Um, Megan, I am so thankful for you to be uh, on our show, and we hope that you can return maybe some point later. Yeah. Uh, Megan Elias from Boston University, thank you very much for sharing thank your you. expertise and your passion. Thank you. Well, today's final guest, last but certainly not least, is Amy Thielen. She is a two-time James Beard Award-winning writer and is the author of the New Midwestern Table Cookbook and Give the Girl a Knife, which is a memoir. She's also host of the Food Network's Heartland Table and a contributing editor to Severo Magazine. And of course, most importantly, <laughs> uh, for a show that is about the Midwest, she is actually a Midwestern native from the state of Minnesota. Amy, we're so excited to have you. Hey, thanks for calling me up. Absolutely. So like I just said, uh, you're from the Midwest, but I know you had lived uh, on the coast, I believe, uh, out in New York City for a number of years. So that had to give you a little bit of a different perspective um, on the Midwest. So did leaving the Midwest give you a chance to um, kind of gain a new perspective on what the region had to offer when it comes to food? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I was born and raised in northern Minnesota near the headwaters of the Mississippi, and that's where I, I live today. But I lived out in New York City for about 10 years, and I also went away for college. So uh, I guess, you know, in the course of my lifetime, my time away from this place is really just going to be about a blip of 15 years, probably, because I expect to stay here. But, you know, when it comes to food, uh when I got to New York City, it it was a it was a shock, but I loved it so much that I felt like it just you know it was quite natural. And also, when you're from a really rural region, my town was quite small, and I had been living out in the woods, uh, far away from any town. You know, it's so dramatic. Like those kinds of rural spaces are are so dramatic in their own right. And then New York City is so dramatic. So I feel like both of those places had this kind of, you know, hive energy. And when I got to the food and I went, I started cooking in uh, fine dining restaurants almost right away. And I worked in fine dining in New York City for seven years and lived there for 10. And yeah, I started to see a real through line. I started to see connections rather than differences. Wow. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So, you know, when I worked as a cook, uh, as a line cook, I worked at some really top restaurants. And so it wasn't like they were very busy, but we we were also kind of on the front lines of contemporary art, I would say. You know, a lot of the chefs were from Europe and had worked at Michelin three star places. And so it, it really felt almost like the art world. And my husband's an artist. So those Interesting. two, those two worlds kind of came together. You know, I, I call it like it was tweezer food, you know. Yes, I totally know. That's a great visual for our audio audience. Yeah, and also food church is another one, really, because, you you know, people who eat in these places, there's a hush in the dining room, everything's very reverent. I mean, it was a place like that. So 
what's odd about that though is that when you get to that level of cooking um and you're making small plates and menus and VIP menus and tasting menus all that kind of thing you get to this place where a lot of the inspiration actually comes from an older deeper more rural tradition so interesting because we just had a we just had a guest on talking about how midwestern food in particular kind of got dismissed in uh, cookbooks historically um, uh, and food writing because, yeah. you know, it was uh, things that were revered were more along the lines of French food and, and things that were fussy or high end. Mm. And that in juxtaposition to Midwestern food, which was perceived as simple um, and therefore dismissed and without character. But it sounds like you're saying there's, there's, there is that through line, which I find really fascinating. Um, and, uh, not something that I would have necessarily maybe uh, thought of. Yeah, let me give you a, let me give you an, an example, a story. So Please. you know, yeah. So I had come from Minnesota where I've been gardening and we've been growing all of our own food. And then when I moved to the restaurant and was working in, in New York City and was working in restaurants, you know, the ingredients that we were using at that level of cooking were really top flight, and so we would get potatoes from a farmer upstate New York and they would come in and, and, you know, the, you know, the chef would talk about these certain kinds of potatoes. And, and I started to remember how, when I would dig my potatoes, you know, they were really freshly dug and I never let them cure out in the sun or anything. And I would just bring them into the pot to cook them. They were, they had really sweet skins, you know, and they were, they had a different texture and a flavor, a sweetness to them. And I was seeing the same kind of thing in the restaurant. And I would call them, you know, midnight potatoes, potatoes that have never seen the light of day. And that's a kind of a, a, an, an ingredient that's really specialized. But that's what Midwesterners, my neighbors back in northern Minnesota, would talk about how great the potatoes were if you just took them from the dirt to the pot. And so I remember I was working for uh, some Austrians at this time, and it was an Austrian chef, and he's like, Amy, he's like, you know, good cooking is not foie gras and all this stuff that I was kind of taken up with because I'd never seen it before. He said, good cooking is potatoes and onions. And that's kind of when I had that revelation that, you know, Midwestern food had a lot to offer. That I, I love that. And, you know, when you talked about food church, to me, um, food churches is more, I guess, is is the farmland, is that sort of agricultural vastness and peace that comes with, you know, being out with the land. So when I think mm-hmm. food church, at least that's what it comes to my mind um, and could also be extrapolated as a, as a through line between, you know, uh, what you're talking about. Um, I, I want to really in, That's really interesting. Sorry, I just want to say that. Oh, no. Because I, it's a class thing, too, because, you know, I think that people aren't used, who aren't used to going to fine dining restaurants, uh, it's kind of intimidating. Sure. Whereas for upper class people, really rich people who are accustomed to going to Michelin three stars or New York City four stars, you know, it's very reverent and calming and soothing. So that's and, really interesting. And and likely probably a bit um, foreign to, uh, you know, be out in um, rural mid-America or, mm-hmm. you know, going going to a steak fry or a fish fry mm-hmm. or potluck that, that may exist or having a Minnesota hot dish, which 
um, you know, I, we had a, a whole like, uh, conversation about, um, uh, green bean casseroles <laughs> on the yes. show earlier. And so it's just that state of mind that is Midwestern food. And I, I know that, and I mentioned this at the top of, of our conversation, you did a whole cookbook called The New Midwestern Table. And I want you to talk about that and your inspiration behind um, bringing maybe old recipes uh, to and, and breathing new life into them. Yeah. Uh, you know, so when I moved back home from New York City in 2008, um, I knew I wanted to work on a cookbook and I, and I knew I wanted it to be a Midwestern book. And I've been kind of shelving some ideas uh, for quite a, some time. And then I was, I was kind of stuck, though, because the Midwest had been known for uh, meat and potatoes. And, you know, Minnesota in particular had been known for these kind of kitschy things like bunt cake and hot dish and and all the books about them were very kitschy and very nostalgic for a 50s and 60s kind of era mm -hmm. which you know in the food you know I have some of my own nostalgia for but that's not really what I wanted to explore and so when I started to think about it and I decided to just wow what if I can just like skip the whole industrial food era the 50s and 60s of midwestern food that you know was thrown out into America as very American, you know, via Betty Crocker, the joy of right. cooking a little bit right. earlier, um, you know, the test kitchens of General Mills and that stuff. If I just skipped it entirely, then I had this real arc that connected between what was happening, you know, five years ago when I wrote the book or six years ago and what happened in my grandmother's era. And it was kind of this like cast iron cooking that, yes. That's where I found the arc, and that's what I wanted to explore, those connections between, you know, a couple of generations previous and my own. And just by doing that, then I kind of ended up writing basically an anthology of, of you know, the greatest hits of Midwestern food of the last couple of hundred years, a lot of which were, you know, recipes that immigrants from Europe came over mm. and, and brought with them. Right. And things that, that became popular. I mean, there's some food that, you know, is further back, like in more Native American, you know, inspired. But I didn't, you know, I didn't have really an inroads to that culture mm -hmm. except through wild rice, which I really write a lot about. But sure. everything else I didn't feel that those stories weren't really mine to tell. Absolutely. And, and thankfully, we are going to be exploring uh, the indigenous foodway traditions in the Midwest uh, later on in this series, because it is such Great. an important part of, of the story and the tapestry of Midwestern foodways uh, and traditions and culture. And you, you also mentioned that the different types of, of immigrant groups, and we've, we've introduced some of that already to our audience, and we're going to have a deeper dive into all of that. Um, I want to ask you, I would be remiss if I let you go without asking you what your favorite Midwestern dish is to either make or eat. I mean, I have to say And why? Meat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I just have to say meat, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I really love to cook meat. I do. I, I like to get meat from my neighbors and I like to cook fish, but... And vegetables. I make a lot of vegetables. But there's something about cooking meat. My mother was very good at it. And I feel that's like... A big, that's a big category. I mean... Okay. Oh, you want a dish. Okay. Yeah. 
All right. I would say roast chicken. Okay. Yes. So and I mean, I mean, very uh, simple, very simple, and very elevated at the same time. When you think about how much, you know, emphasis, for example, in French cooking, there is on on making the perfect roast chicken and a and a you know that sort of thing. Uh, with rosemary and but so so simple and something that you see oftentimes in Amish communities as well. I mean, you see it in a lot of different cultures, a roast chicken or chicken in general. But, you know, I think that what makes a good one from a bad one is really just that attention to all the details. You know, it's uh, if you get a chicken, first of all, it's it's the chicken, you know, it has to be a great chicken that's raised outside pecking. It has thicker skin when when they're you know movement and and the not only the muscles are better i mean the okay i don't <laughs> the <laughs> muscles are better that's terrible okay let me start over with that um <laughs> i know i i love the visuals i mean it's maybe not the most appetizing no 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 it's but, not no but, <laughs> but you, i do love I mean, the visuals <laughs> the difference between a good chicken and an okay one is really starts with the chicken which should come from uh, a pasture or a farm and be outside where it can you know pick up good flavors from what it's pecking at. And also the skin gets so much thicker and that's really the key. So I think that, you know, it's just attention to details. You know, you baste it as it's in the oven, but you don't want to baste it that last 20 minutes because, you know, then that would sop the skin of all that crisp crispness, you know, so you want to blast it and get that skin just like as thick as pastry, you know? Well, you're you're talking you're talking like it's an art as well, which I think is a is a great way um, to loop this all back together. Because you know, you talked about when you were in New York, how you know you saw this meld of art and food, <laughs> but the way that you're describing mm-hmm. just doing a, a roast chicken in and of itself, as, as simple as it may be, um, you know, sounds like it's it's an art in and of itself. Um, so I want to ask you one more question, if if you. Uh, if you'd bear with me, because I'm curious if you would, uh, what your thoughts are as far as what do you think is in store for the next generation of Midwestern food traditions? I and think that's a big question, but. It is. I mean, I think in general, anything goes at this point. And I also think that our scope is just getting wider and wider because all we're, we have a different kind of population. You really see it in the cities like Minneapolis, St. Paul. There's a there's an enormous Hmong popula- population there, one of the biggest in the U.S., and the farmer's markets are just incredible. I mean, they're just so verdant. So There's so much moisture on every table because everything is so freshly picked. It smells so good. Um I love I love being inspired by who has come here more recently and seeing what they're doing. And I think that going forward after all of this coronavirus isolation, I think that we are going to return to for one thing cooking. It makes me so happy that people are making breakfast, lunch and dinner in their homes. Yes, and and I think we're going to continue to see that absolutely after all of this. Yeah, and then after that I think it's just going to be local, local, local because you know, the food chains, there's a fragility to them mm. that maybe we didn't really understand before. We took for granted how, how well everything worked. But when, when things break down, you know, you're going to have to buy stuff from your neighbors. And I think that that kind of, those relationships are going to come back in a big way. And I, I think that's such a good thing for just human connection, communication, also 
politics because you know you're bringing all these people together and people sure. know their neighbors um a little bit better which is great because you know the internet's kind of isolated us in the country right. a little bit more than we were i mean i remember when we lived here without a phone uh back in the day people would just stop by yes and and i think we're going to see more of that and i think that's a really good thing well, the resurgence of community, and community is definitely at the heart of the heartland, and food is at the heart of community, and I, I love this. Uh, Amy, thank you so much for joining us, and folks, check out her uh, her cookbook, her which is a previous one, but the one we're talking about today, um, the new Midwestern Table. Amy Thien, thank you so much for, for joining us. Capri, thanks for having me. It was great. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.